Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Douglas Rushkoff. Douglas is a professor of media theory and digital economics at Queens University, City of New York University, and he's the host of the Team Humans podcast. He's author of the book Team Human, as well as more than a dozen other best-selling books on media, technology, and culture, including one of my real favorites titled Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. Uh, my wife and I were both reading it while we were spending a month in San Francisco. I think this was probably 20, when did it get published? 16, I think, we, I think it was 2017. Mm-hmm. And we were seeing these unlabeled white buses sneak around and we eventually figured out, ah, those were the Google buses. <laughs> uh, people have been throwing rocks at them and now they were incognito. But that was definitely a kind of yikes kind of experience. His most <laughs> recent book is Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. I just kindled it about a week ago, and perhaps Douglas and I will be back another time to talk about it. But today, we're going to focus on two of his recent essays on Medium. They're titled, What's a Meta, M-E-T-A space, F-O-R, Part 1 and Part 2 on Medium. And as always, links to these will be on our episode page at jimrutcho.com. So, welcome, Douglas. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Yeah, this is great. I think this is your third appearance on the podcast. You were one of my very first, which I really appreciate. And I know, and you seem cheerier. You seem to be a, a happier man now than when you started this podcast. Yeah, probably that first one. I was kind of not knowing if I knew what the hell I was doing, <laughs> and the dumb. and of course the answer was I wasn't. I was just making <laughs> it up. But now we're uh, been doing it two hundred and sixty episodes, oh amazingly my God. enough, and doing pretty well on the listenership and all that kind of stuff. So now it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> goodness. Well, before we jump in, first, I want to say us farmers have a different answer to what's a metaphor. And that is, it's for grazing cattle. What do you think, city boy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like that one. It was like, right, the paradigms could still get you phone call in, the, in New York. Yeah, well, I, I think it was yeah, the early, in the early 90s, the word paradigm just got out of control in yeah. business. And I was working for a large multinational publishing company at the time. And I used to carry two dimes in my pocket. So every time anybody used that word inappropriately, which was at least 98% of the time, I doubt any of them had read Kuhn's book on scientific uh-huh. revolutions. I'd pull the two dimes out and slap them on the table. There's your paradigms, motherfucker, right? Oh, dear. Anyway, let's get back to our topic. In part one of your essay, you basically start to, you start out with talking about Zuck and his notorious renaming and maybe, if he's successful, repositioning of Facebook as Meta. Why don't you roll from there a little bit? Well, I guess what I've been looking at is it's a perfect case study in the abuse of meta, you know, much like the abuse of paradigm. So meta 
they, you know, as, as most of us know, means kind of going one level above, one level out. And most of us knew that Facebook was kind of reaching the end of its life as, as we know it. You know, its subscriber rate had kind of peaked and it was no longer cool. And they were answering all these questions and Sheryl Sandberg jumped ship. You know, this poor guy was alone in front of Congress, you know, <laughs> defending this platform that people didn't even want to play with anymore. And his solution, in one sense, was to go meta in the same way that when when the dot-com boom and bust was happening and all these websites were competing against each other. Remember, Tim O'Reilly came out with, you know, Web 2.0. You don't want to be a website. You want to be the website that aggregates all those other websites. You know, go meta on business, become the aggregator, and you could be one level above, one level beyond everybody else. And it looked to me blatantly like, oh, so, you know, now that Web 2 has run its course, what does Zuckerberg do? I'm going to do Web three, you know, so we're good. Web three will go meta on web two and aggregate all these other things in a new blockchain virtual reality, every buzzword that we can come up with, you know, basket of next generation tech that we will own. And just to make it clear that no one can go meta on me after that, my name is just going to be Meta, so we're just Meta. We'll keep going Meta as as long as as long as we as long as we need we need to. Of course, he's also going Meta. I suppose you could think in a media sense, right? You know, if you think of Web One. You know, back when you and I got involved, it was all text and the occasional image, right? And then right. Web Two ish, you know, lots of images. And then lots of video, right? And then right. Web3, well, yeah, the Web3, weird term. I mean, some people use it to mean blockchain bullshit, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But another way to think about it could be legitimately the idea of immersive telepresence, what people call virtual reality or augmented right. reality. And I expect he does he does mean to capture some of that too, not just oh yeah, not just to be the king of all things. Let's no right. He means it as as VR, which is interesting because when I first heard Web three, it was meant to refer to the semantic web. Remember that? Oh, absolutely. I, I went down that rat hole quite a long ways, learned how to write, what was it, RDF statements mm -hmm. and, and played with some of the simple tools for navigating them. Yeah, whatever. I, it's something I wake up at three o'clock in the morning about once a year and say, whatever happened to the semantic web? It, I know. In some ways, I think it became AI and GPT chat, you know, is in some ways, you know, once I can have, uh, it'll be funny, once I can have my GPT chat answering my email and other people are using theirs to answer theirs, then I guess we just leave and let our yeah. Speaking of which, you know, Chat GPT is quite damn amazing. I mean, I played with these generator tools since they've been coming out, all the way back to GPT two, I guess, and the mm. art ones and all that. But Chat GPT does go over some line where it's like. I, I couldn't find the obvious walls within two hours. I, you know, I can show you where a few of the walls are now, but the walls are way out. This thing is actually good for a lot of stuff. You'll love this. You know, I've done lots of things like, okay, uh, describe Hegel's concept of the absolute, right? It does a pretty good job on something like that, oddly enough. Or one of the first things I did is compare and contrast Conrad's Lord Jim and Melville's Moby Dick, you know, classic 12th grade English essay. Mm -hmm. Not bad, right? But it was just fun fooling around. I actually used it for something useful this week. I had it write me a resignation letter from some board I'm on. And, oh and you know, that's the kind of thing that you struggle with because you want to get it just right. You don't want to insult right. people, et cetera. I said, you know, 
uh, okay, write me a resignation letter from X, right? Say that I'm too busy. I've got new responsibilities and too busy, blah, blah, blah. Make it very pleasant, upbeat, and yada, yada. You know, so it basically took me like 10 seconds to type that in. Uh-huh. And it wrote a perfect letter, better than I would have ever written myself. So That's uh, interesting. I know. Well, I got students doing that now, which is really interesting. I mean, two of the pieces written, you know, the final project essays in my propaganda class were clearly... AI written. I mean, I knew it for two reasons. One, because I'd seen these students writing the rest of the semester. (laughs) And two, the way, it's interesting though, the AIs have a certain flatness about the way they express themselves. They don't, they, they stay at one level of, of depth where when usually when you're interacting with a person or reading a person, they kind of go deeper in and then come back out, you know, with the AI seems a bit flat, you know, it's not that it's not deep, but it's at a very standard level of depth. And that's today, and as my good friend Peter Wang likes to say, let's consider chat GPT to be December 1903. Uh. What's the significance of that? It's when the Wright brothers got their first plane, more or less a large kite with an engine on it, off the ground. So these things will improve very rapidly. In fact, I was playing the other day with another one of these tools called character.ai, where their little shtick is that they have built a front end and a back end that allows them to take a model like GPT-3, it may even be GPT-3, though I don't think so, and give it personality. So mm. I've had conversations with Aristotle, J.R.R. Mm. Tolkien, and the most recent one I had was with, what's his name? Soprano, the guy from the TV oh, show. Tony Soprano. Tony. That's great. It was actually pretty cool. It was like, I have to say, this things didn't have that flatness, didn't right. have that political correctness, you know? Well, not yet. But the, the interesting thing is, I mean, I keep thinking back to the, the, the moment that uh, Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator came out, you know, and I remember all the kids were making um, rave, rave flyers, you know, for things with these new technologies. And there was a moment of a few months where we thought, oh my gosh, anybody with these tools is now a designer. And everything looked professional until we started to really become able to perceive, oh, this is just some kid being led by his tools versus a real designer using the tools. So there was like a recalibration period, but now any of us can see the difference between a designer using one of these things and just some jerk using a template, not a jerk, but uh, an amateur using a template. And I feel like the same thing will happen with, with AI, that we'll get to that place where we're able to see, uh, we're able to perceive, oh, this is an AI talking to me. You know, even if right now it looks like, oh my gosh, this, this is, in other words, our ability to, to uh, push through a Turing test will get better and better over time. Yep, that's well, that makes that's interesting, you know. Because I still re- I remember the first time I had that experience was remember PageMaker way back in the oh, dawn yeah. technology. That was the first thing that made it pretty easy to use fonts and create brochures. And there was quickly a whole bunch of butt ugly brochures on the screen, yeah. right? And as you say, the tools were powerful, but the skills were not. Right. Or the skills rise. I mean, so, you know, using a, a, an author, a real author using an AI writing tool in theory will produce something more interesting than a complete amateur just typing in, you know, uh, typing in a question. But we'll see. But that and that gets to the heart of what we were talking about, though, with this sort of going meta thing. So so you could say and many technologists I've talked to are, are specifically afraid of AI because they think AI will go meta on them. You know, I remember I was at one of uh, uh, O'Reilly's things, actually. You know those food camps that he does? Yeah, yeah. 
I was at one of those and a guy who was responsible for one of the one of the main teenage teenager using social media platforms or or apps. He was concerned. He said, Doug, I'm concerned for you. You've been writing some really negative things about AI lately. Aren't you scared that when the AIs are in charge, they're going to look at what you wrote and use that against you? And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, I don't write anything at all. I don't tweet. I say nothing. I, I selectively, you know, delete anything that that's about AI from anything social. And I said, well, if these AIs are going to be so smart, aren't they going to be able to see that you, you know, intentionally left out anything about AI? Aren't they going to be able to easily infer how you feel about AI based on that? And he looks at me like, oh shit, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it's it's the it, that's the the comeuppance for trying to go meta on everybody is you think that something like AI you know or or the what they used to call it the the, the Internet of Things you know you're going to realize that you are the thing on the Internet of Things yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're the thing being operated yeah there's that that the general version of that thing that the, your friend or the kid was concerned about is called Rocco's Basilisk right. which is the theory that the great AI of the future will come back and torture everybody who tried to <laughs> obstruct it in any way right <laughs> good luck with that yeah. you know uh, we'll program in the, for, the, for them not to do that today but but the meta thing that 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 Zuckerberg was doing, and in some ways that the the person who was afraid of, of AI was doing, is these kind of wholesale leaps from one thing to another, as if that's the desirable sort of evolutionary path. You know, when when Peter Thiel, his business book is called, you know, from zero to one, as if what you have to do to run a successful business is be one order of magnitude. That's what he says. Literally, you have to have do you have to be 10x what the competition is. Everybody else is competing and you can rise above that competition. Or, you know, even, even when uh, Stuart Brand says, you know, we're as gods and may as well get good at it. Th this idea that we are once removed, you know, that we can somehow rise above like Kurzweil, you know, rise above the chrysalis of matter as pure consciousness and go meta on this mere mortal, you know, <laughs> Terran existence is when it's like, oh, wait a minute. I get it. You want to be, you know, I, I, I understand you want to be self-sovereign, but even that construction, I look at it, what does that mean? Self-sovereign, you're king of you. So you not only objectify everyone and everything else, now you objectify yourself and become both, you know, <laughs> you're both monarch and subject in the same reality. Yeah, that's uh, that is an unfortunate direction. In fact, in the second part of our discussion, we talk about your part two. We'll compare and contrast. Okay, that which I would call late stage financialized game A with game B. We'll have some difference of opinion about mm. that, but uh, certainly that is not anything that the game B movement identifies as good. Is you know ultra individualistic, me, me, me. Right. But let's go on talking about part one here a little bit. Very apropos. I think you you wrote it before the shit show was in full force, but you do mention effective altruism, uh, William McCaskill and Elon Musk. And mm. uh, uh, those three things have certainly been in the news a whole bunch with the meltdown of the uh, crypto exchange and uh, all the various things Elon's been doing on Twitter. How do you think those two things fit into your 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 theory of the meta? Well, in some well, I mean, effective altruism is the easy one, right? So the the especially their 
or many of their idea that you know the the eight billion people alive today are just kind of the the larva, the larval stage of humanity, and what we should care about are the the ones who grow into real flies, you know, and get off the planet. So that if there's eight billion people suffering today, that doesn't really matter in comparison with the trillions of people who will have spawned the universe thousands of years from now. You know, if you're a pure utilitarian and some kind of a you know digital Jeremy Bentham on steroids way, you would think, well, the happiness of the trillions matters more than the happiness of the few billion. So let's optimize for them. So even if we have to do stuff that's, you know, very painful for people today in terms of, you know, whatever carbon and damage and economic inequality, it's worth it for this, you know, for this future, which is as different from our reality as going meta, right? It's no longer some sort of linear progression, you know, in, in human development. It's the meta progression to the next, the next stage, you know. And I, I felt like most, most of these folks, even, you know, I started to talk about about um, crypto in that sense. This idea, certainly, of early crypto, something like Bitcoin, not. And I'm really interested in blockchain used for for good things. Don't get me wrong. You know, blockchain to orchestrate the power grid is a really promising way of understanding these technologies. But you know, Bitcoin was you know for me a funeral pyre. We're just going to you know convert atoms into bits. So it's the conversion of the real world into the meta world. You know, the physical world into these this this cryptographic symbol system. And you know, once you're you believe more in the symbol system than you do in reality. I mean, that's pure, you know, pure idolatry. That's, you know, that's kind of the biggest danger we can face. Interesting. Yeah, I have my own objection to Bitcoin. I still have it, which not that one. I do. That's an interesting one. I'm going to have to meditate on that a little bit. And that is that, frankly, all Bitcoin is, is a digital form of gold, which has replaced the cost and energy of taking the ship around the horn and the hike mm. up the mountains to the Yukon gold rush for burning a bunch of electricity and accelerating the heat death of the universe. But that doesn't really add anything new. And is, if anything, it's a step backwards. Because of its, right. you know, its anti-inflation, its deflationary design. You know, it's, I'm amazed that so many people have fallen for Bitcoin. I must say. Now, of course, I made the trading mistake of believing I was right, uh, which I think I'm right. But I made the <laughs> uh, the trading mistake of not realizing how many people would take the other side of the proposition. And so, you know, Bitcoin's up a factor of I think about 200 even now uh, from the time right. I de- from the time I denounced it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh well, you're you're so smart, Rut. Why aren't you rich, right? Well, you're right. It's just the timing that's a little off. That's all. Exactly. (laughs) In the same kind of contemporary basket of things under change and going meta, Elon Musk. You've written subsequently about him a little bit. What do you think about Elon and Twitter? I I mean, I don't even know where where to start. I mean, I think what Elon Musk and Twitter, what Elon Musk is doing successfully, is revealing how ludicrous it would be to use a kind of a techno monarch as <laughs> ruler ruler of the country you know as a, as a proof of concept for you know kind of peter thiel's techno monarchic designs it's sort of it's it's saving us all from that because it looks like oh this is what it looks like to have an impetuous imperious person making one decision one day another decision another day saying what he's going to do then changing his mind and then going back on this promise or that it's it's bizarre and the scariest moment you know it, it feels to me like what what Elon is doing is kind of Trump 2.0 you know that Trump was the the troll in chief for the 
years that he was on that platform. I mean, there's no question. And Musk really has gone and bought the platform and be, and tried to use the same sorts of, I don't even know what you call it, the same sorts of blackmail that Trump would use on the platform. But where it worked politically, which just shows how bad politics is, it doesn't really work in a free market, right? So what 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 he did, what Musk did to try to be a bit like uh, Trump was said that, okay, anyone who pulls their advertising from this platform because of how I'm acting, we're going to unleash thermonuclear, you know, <laughs> thermonuclear war against you. So I'm going to get all of my Twitter trolls to go against your company and do this. And it was frightening to people, but that's a really bad way to attract advertisers to your platform. Could you imagine voluntarily going and, and, and advertising on a platform where you understood that if you decided to leave the platform for any reason, they're going to like the mob, they're going to come after you in that, in that. And the, I mean, like the original mob, not the mobsters, but in some ways like the mobsters too. But they're gonna they're gonna turn the trolls on you. Oh my God, stay away, right? Stay away from that. But it was interesting to see it because it was like, I feel like in some ways the first person who who had this identity on Twitter was Charlie Sheen. Remember back when Charlie Sheen had his kind of public nervous breakdown on Twitter? I was not on Twitter in those days. I didn't actually start doing tw- – I have had an account since the week it went up, but I didn't really follow it until after I started my podcast where sort of us podcasters have to become media whores to some degree to promote I ourselves. We do. <laughs> you can at least get those links out. Yeah. Oh, my God. A quote and a link. A quote and a link. That's my entire Twitter persona at this point is just links to other things. I can't – when I go on Twitter, I, I feel so awful afterwards. You know, when I just, there's just such, such an aggravating experience to see what people are believing and the kinds of things they're arguing that I've just sort of opted out for now. I, I can't really, I can't really watch it, but, but, you know, Charlie Sheen was sort of the first person to have this kind of manic, manic nervous breakdown on Twitter. And then I felt like Donald Trump did the same thing and it's not that they're leading something, but they kind of jump into this standing wave of culture, you know, that they, 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 that Trump did and then embodied it and rode along with it. And now I feel like uh, Musk is trying to surf that same thing and he can't really influence it. All he can do is, is try to ride it. And every time he tries to impact it or intervene somehow, it backfires on him. So I think he's finally coming to grips with, oh, this is, this is a bigger and more difficult challenge than I, <laughs> than I first imagined. And that my, my sort of middle school level understanding of uh, freedom of speech is not up to the challenge of negotiating this community. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch him flail about but I still am reserving reservation on whether it will be a disaster or not. I think there's three possibilities. One, he actually does see something and he is steering towards it as rapidly as he can. Mm. You know, it was funny. I was giving a little talk out at the Santa Fe Institute three or four weeks ago. And one of the things I was kind of musing about at the time was, well, maybe some of the things Musk is doing is sensible, but firing all those people that quickly, I don't know about that. And I, while I was there, I talked to two people from Silicon Valley, both of them very sensible, mature thinkers, right? One a, v, a VC, the other a senior executive at a large company. And they said, Jim, actually, he's probably right. You won't believe how overstaffed those high-flying San Francisco tech companies are. He could probably fire 75% of his people and it would be a net gain. 
And I go, mm-hmm. hmm, maybe. I will say that his changes in free speech are certainly a change. I actually wrote an essay called Musk in Moderation, where I, when he first announced, it's on Quillet, when he first announced his takeover. And I specifically warned against his claim standard that if it's legal, it should be okay on the platform. You know, you and I, we've talked about this last time. We've both been in the online world since the, you know, at least 1980 in my case, I think 1990 in your case. And we know that if you make what is legal the standard, it's going to turn into a dumpster fire every time. You know, it's legal to use the N-word to someone's face as a personal insult in the United States. It's legal to say, you know, I hope your house burns down and your children die, right? You can't build a community based on behavior like that. So you have to have decorum and you have and it's probably wise to rule out truly unsafe things like how to commit suicide or, you know, how to commit bulimia or whatever. Right. On the on the other hand, where I am with Musk, and this is where I'm hopeful for Musk, I do think that in a healthy public square any ideas should be allowed so long as they're presented decorously and you don't engage in personal attacks, you don't dox people, etc. People want to advocate for Marxist-Leninism, have at it, even though it killed 100 million people in the 20th century. Somebody wants to advocate for Nazism, have at it, people, even though it killed 60 million people in the 20th century. QAnon, I think they're total nutcases, right? Make your case. Catholicism, which I was raised in, you know, I think it's completely batshit nuts, right? But if people want to advocate for Catholicism, have have at it. So that part of the Muskian vision, he may actually be headed in the right place, but he, uh, it's not clear whether he's learning fast enough to avoid the inevitable right. dumpster fires. Right. And I think, I mean, and I, I wrote a piece, kind of a, almost a joke piece, what I would do if I were CEO of Twitter. I mean, the first thing I would do there is get rid of the algorithm. I just never saw why, how does that help anything? You know, if Twitter worked the way it did back when it had its IPO, Twitter would be making, it was making $2 billion a year, which seems to me pretty good off a 140 character messaging app and then stop. You know, the problem is you're not allowed to stop in the economy the way it works. Your con- your company has to keep growing so that you get the next level of investors can get 10x or 50x or 100x or whatever. But if you were able to say, look, Twitter with 140 characters or go up to 280, $2 billion is pretty good revenue. Now, what do we want to do? Do we want to do algorithms and video and this and that and go nuts? Or is Twitter fine? So if they were not boosting certain posts, then they wouldn't have to see themselves as a publication. They wouldn't have to then take a call from the government about retuning the algorithm to suppress this and increase that. Just let people subscribe to the... Well, you remember, in the early days of Twitter, it was really a way for people to do cross carrier messaging. So if you in the old days, there were times if you had AT&T and someone else had Verizon and someone else had T-Mobile, you couldn't text each other. It was like you, you'd have to get an intermediate. So Twitter served two functions. It allowed people with different kinds of phones to text each other and allowed you to kind of create subscriptions around your text messages. So 100 people could subscribe to my text messages when I sent them to the Twitter server. 
was great. And then you're just seeing people you subscribe to. Subscribe to any. You want to subscribe to a Nazi, you subscribe to a Nazi and read their stuff. That's fine. But if I don't subscribe to the Nazi, I don't want to see that Nazi stuff in my inbox. I don't want some algorithm to put it there trying to trick me into being upset and then retweeting it to my 30 friends for them to be upset and so on and so on. And then it's trending and then it's this. That whole thing is just sort of isn't needed. And if you're going to do that, then it's a newspaper. Then you're making selections and you're making editorial selections. I don't think, you know, 230, whatever it is, uh, Section 230, it doesn't work anymore. So it's it's it just seemed to me pretty easy to do it that way. And then if that's not making enough money, what about slowly turning it over to some kind of some kind of DAO, some kind of, you know, you create a an editorial community that's curating Twitter or people who are actually working there, let them be worker owners. Let users be user owners. It's like this is this is what all this tech was for. What all the DAOs and blockchains, you know, we finally have something. Oh, let's do that. You know, so if I was a billionaire like like Musk and didn't need to make money on Twitter, I would look at its, you know, what do we used to call it? Return to community. How do you how do you return this app to the people who use it? Yeah, and of course, Jack Dorsey always claimed that his biggest mistake was turning Twitter into a business when it really should have been a protocol yes. that was open sourced. And we are now seeing, of course, it's been around since 2016, we are now seeing the Fediverse, Mastodon, and mm-hmm. other things that use the same protocol trying to build build out. Though I have to admit, I just spent a couple of weeks part-time over on Mastodon. Very boring. It's like hanging out at the lunchroom of the New York Times or Columbia University, right? It's the conventional wisdom recited again and again and again. Uh, the thing I do like about Twitter and, and, and why I don't have most of the negative valences about Twitter, a lot of people do, I only follow who I want to follow. And I mostly follow people in what's called the heterodox space or the mm-hmm. liminal web, you know, what you call the sense makers. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. And you know, I think I follow 700 people. And they never talk about team red, team blue politics, right? They never talk about celebrities. You know, they never talk about the kind of annoying crap that apparently circulates widely on the rest of Twitter. But that is the neat thing about Twitter is that you can find your people and and build yourselves very dynamic networks of these people. And I wrote in another essay just published a couple of days ago on Quillet called, what the hell is it called? Saving Twitter, a round table. Hmm. And with two other authors, unfortunately, mine's the second buried in the middle essay. And I basically suggest that Musk actually live up to his vision of helping humanity and nudge Twitter to being the collective intelligence platform Mm. for humanity. Allow us to find those communities that we want to work together with. Yeah. And to your point, don't stuff Nazis down our throat. Yeah. Don't don't stuff Marxist Leninists or QAnuts or Catholics down our throat either. Right. But the problem is Musk personally has clearly has such a deep-seated need for a certain kind of attention to be seen as the bad boy, good boy, radical, this, that, that he's made as much as he can. He's made Twitter about himself and Twitter about itself. And there's this moment, you know, I remember when I was first called in by um, one of the major American Jewish I don't even know what you call it. The more solipsistic Jewish organizations, a Jewish organization worried about Judaism. And I remember telling them, look, the the minute that kids sniff 
that Judaism is more concerned about Judaism than it is about them, they're going to go running. You know, there's a moment in every sort of institution's life where it becomes sort of more about preserving the institution than doing whatever the institution was there for. So if you go on Twitter and the main conversation is about Twitter, who cares? Then it's like, uh oh, <laughs> this one's this yeah. one's going down. Yeah, that is true. That since Musk took over, get back to the M word, Meta Twitter is probably twenty percent right. even of my feed, and I and I curate my feed pretty rigorously to keep it focused on these new, interesting, heterodox ideas that are cooking out there. And you are right. Eventually, people say, ah, you know, if it's Meta Twitter all the time and Elon. So this is my third possibility for Elon and Twitter that he's in a Trumpian narcissist doom spiral. Yeah. And I think that's possible, but I hope at least that he's not as utterly toxic a personality yeah. as Trump. I mean, Trump is just nothing but a narcissistic shit show as far as I can right. tell from top to bottom. And that he will at some point realize that there are other interesting things he could do with Twitter and just beating his chest. Me, me, me. Hey, you're already the richest dude in the world or second richest. You got right. nine kids, half a mil legitimate. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're the man. We, okay. You're the man. Let's move on. Right. Right. But the beauty of the, of the downward spiral of the, of the, you know, uh, a solipsistic tech bro shit show that you're that you're referring to is if he does it it's kind of it's self scapegoating but if he does it then it kind of exposes the whole toxic you know tech bro shit show and we can go oh that's not the direction right so 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 Mark Zuckerberg wanting to be Augustus Caesar, you know, which we should be thankful. It's not Caligula. You know, I got that. It's better. It's still a Roman dictator. It's like, no, that's not the direction to go, my friends. You know, Elon Musk wanting to become, you know, some version of Jeffrey Epstein, right? With just spreading his seed. What do they call it? In Semini. They're spermicidal. They have a whole... They have a name for what they are. They're sperm people. You know, to spread. It's part of their... Their their branch of effective altruism is once you realize that your genes are better than everybody else's, spread them as far and wide. Find as many teenage girls to impregnate as possible. Build dormitories for them and spread. You know that these that these kind of uh, uh, tech bro fantasies are are exposed through Musk. They're exposed. You know, uh, Meta. What Meta stock price has gone down seventy percent. Facebook's like the next Friendster or something. Sam Bankman Freed. You know has has not blown up all of crypto, hopefully, or all of blockchain, but he's blown up a certain bizarre, distorted tech bro dream of what that could be. And all I'm hoping is that these guys kind of crash and burn, not necessarily personally, but but they destroy the illusion. This sort of emperor with no clothes thing is, is revealed. And then we get to still save the net. We get to save the blockchain. We get to save these technologies for, you know, what they're actually good for, which is the stuff that you and I've been doing with them since, you know, yes, yeah, since the eighties. Absolutely. That's, that's actually good. It's a good positive way to look at, uh, even if it is number three, if it's the <laughs> Trumpian doom loop, it'll basically poison that whole model sufficiently. Right. I love the fact you mentioned Augustus Caesar. I didn't know about Zuck's obsession with Caesar until <laughs> I, Augustus until I read Steve Levy's 
book on Facebook. And I actually right. I had Steve on the podcast. We talked about it. And he goes into considerable detail that Zuck is utterly obsessed with Augustus Caesar. Even his wife bitched about, hey, we went to hit Italy on our honeymoon. And instead of, you know, going to the, you know, the seeing the art and going to have fine food, all he wanted to do is go to, you know, the various scenes of the battles of Augustus Caesar. And go, oh, <laughs> yep, he, got the, he even got the haircut. He even He's got, got the, the haircut. <laughs> it's like, ooh, dear me. Oh, dear me. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on now to yeah. essay number two, uh-huh. where you basically you basically have you know kind of turned the corner and say, yeah, uh, tech pros, kind of silly, etc. But then you come after the sense makers, right? And I will confess, I'm considered part of that sense maker world of folks who are looking for an alternative. The ones I referred to earlier as the heterodox folks. Some people call it the liminal web. If you want to look at a little map of the liminal web, a guy named Joe Lightfoot put a very interesting paper back out in November 2021 called the liminal web. So just search the liminal web, Joe Lightfoot, and it'll come up. And you know, there's a, a number of people, now tens of thousands of people, who are looking for an alternative to techno-utopianism, but also an alternative to Team Red, Team Blue politics, also an alternative to 18th, 19th, and 20th century isms, etc. And I think we're doing good stuff. You're less sure. Let's hop into that. Yeah, well, there's a lot of podcasts, and, and they're, they're, they're podcasts done by, you know, smart, intellectual, psychedelic, you know, thoughtful white men, you know, and we know who they are. We can say their names. I mean, they're not evil people, you know, Jordan Peterson and Daniel Schmachtenberger and, and Jordan Hall and Jamie Wheel and David Fuller and Alex Biner. And they're all, you know, on podcasts like Rebel Wisdom and Consilience and this and that. And they have a conversation that is very much like conversations that I have, right? And usually I have them tripping or high or after reading a weird, you know, I've just read Julian Jaynes and now I'm thinking of the nature <laughs> of mine. You know, I just read Desjardins and I'm wondering, are we moving toward the Omega point? When will humanity find itself and get into this thing? And they're, they're pitched as sense making, yet they're actually for most people quite destabilizing conversations. They're not like, so if you're uh, confused and wondering what the heck's going on and you go through one of these conversations where they're just kind of piling on metaphors about, uh, you know, a Star Trek Jedi is in battle with a Wooly master, but is it fractal or is it post-fractal? And it's, well, it's actually, you know, it's like, what the fuck is people what is being said here? And it was just like, well, don't worry. If you didn't understand that, you could take these new nootropic pills and enhance your brain power, or you could take my sense-making course so that then you can understand it and it's all gonna be okay. Just trust us. And I go like, oh, wait a minute. There's a sort of a a, a cognitive risk of listening <laughs> to this stuff. If you're, you know, and and it felt to me then I, I reached the peak of it when I listened to this one conversation between, I guess it was on Rebel Wisdom, between Schmachtenberg, Jordan, and Jamie, where 
they were just kind of piling on metaphors on metaphors and talking a lot about game B. And in it, they were pretty much arguing that game B cannot be understood even what it is with our game A minds. Any attempt to describe it or give words to it will only infect it and inject it with game A logic and, 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 and not let it happen. And that to me is not uh, that it really that it could only be understood through metaphor. And once we're there, we will know what it is. And they were talking about, you know, Deschardins Omega point, this point of total unification of the humanity that we get to as this real thing that we aspire to this thing with this kind of eyes on the prize ends justifies the means determination to get there. And I was like, oh, there, that's another version of meta. And that seemed to me what they were trying to do with all of their sense making is point towards this abstracted omega point of, of uh, uh, collective consciousness that we, we get to in some kind of a leap and you don't really understand it, but we hold hands and close our eyes and get there. I was like, that to me dovetails just a little bit too easily with sort of, you know, hand wavy emergence theory it with, with zero to one going meta on things. And it didn't seem to be really instrumental in helping people get incrementally and safely and in a way that protects the most vulnerable towards the kinds of outcomes that you and I are both sharing. I mean, I've called it anarcho-syndicalism. You call it game B. But I love, it's like a, a world of lots of little kibbutzes networked together and making stuff with our hands and playing. And, and, and it's just like, man, it's like, it's like the, 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 it's almost like the seasteading dream, except we don't have to go on the ocean. We can just do it <laughs> right here, right now in little communities. And I could, you know, I could share a drill with my neighbor instead of them having to go to Home Depot and buy a minimum viable product one and chucking it two days later and throwing the rare earth metals in the ground. I mean, obviously, Game B, as you described the end state, allows for that. We don't, we don't have to serve the market. We get to, you know what I mean? When I, when I tell people in a talk, I say, instead of going and buying a drill, you know, borrow one from your neighbor. Someone gets up and says, well, yeah, but what about the person who's working at the drill company? What about them? Oh dear. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. There's so many of those. Like, do we all really need 2.5 cars in our garage? No. Right. You know, probably 0.5 cars per family would be fine. And even better if there's a community pool of cars, there's a pickup yeah. truck when you need that. There's a little electric vehicle for when you need to go here and there. There's an electric bike. You know, so many optimizations around it. But back to this, uh, yeah. to, your, to your sense of yeah. the sense makers making right. no sense sometimes. Let me confess, sometimes the boys go too far and go out there into yak yak land, or I have no fucking idea what they're talking about either, even though I've been working with them for the last 10 years, mm. right? But, but let me give this big yeah. but. I believe that these kinds of talk is been indispensable into drilling deep enough into understanding game A. Because if you don't understand the binding energies in game A, what mm. holds game A together, how game A keeps replicating itself, despite the fact most of us hate it, right? This right. has required 10 years of serious study by very smart people. And whatever else you might 
say about these sense maker guys and women. There are a few, about 25. A few, but that's another thing to look at. And is part of the replication of it because it's all of these sort of white male dudes, nothing to be so woke even about, just that it's this it's a particular, you know, culture of Western thinking, Western psychedelic thinking that yields itself again and again. I do agree with that, by the way. It's very interesting. Since Game B started in 2013, it's been amazingly consistent. 75% male, 25% female. Mm. And one of the things I am going to propose here as we pivot to Game B 3.0 soon <laughs> is a rigorous gender balance that men and women have. Uh, now, this is if wokes want to hang me. Of course, they want to hang me for all kinds of shit. And I don't care. Fuck you, wokes. But, you know, uh, men and women have different roles in our biological lives and probably some significant psychological differences. And again, these are on average people, right? There are some women who absolutely uh, should and would like to be Marine Corps infantry officers. Right. And they should have every right to do that, right? And there are some men that really love being preschool teachers, but I'm willing to bet serious bucks that in the perfectly gender egalitarian world, there's going to be a lot more men, Marine Corps infantry officers, and a whole lot more women as preschool teachers. But so anyway, so there are differences. And so that a real game B has got to be equal in the inputs of males and females. And, we, and we're already reaching out to other cultures, though we do have to fix Western culture first, since it's the one that's doing the most damage to the world. So starting there, I don't think is a mistake, but, but getting inputs from indigenous cultures around the world who have tens of thousands of years of living in balance with nature, which is the first thing we have to figure out, it's real important. And so let me make the case for why these intellectual excursions have turned out to have been useful. Because uh, you, you will now see in the next year or so, Game B pivot from being this, th you know, the thing that can't be named and, you know, don't ever, uh, all that sort of stuff. But, uh, <laughs> Which is the part that scares me the most, right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. especially as a, as a Jew who has family that lived through, you know, one Holocaust and the, and, and the Cossacks on the other, it's like, unless we define terms early, I don't know if I want to be on the ship. Yeah, right? uh, there's yeah. Uh, that understandable, right? Yeah. And I'm a pretty tangible down to earth guy, yeah. right? I don't tend I'm to. I'm not afraid of you. I'll let you be my president in a second. I'm fine with that. Yeah. You, if I ever get elected president, I'm going to appoint Douglas as my Supreme Court justice, right? Uh, that's just what you want. A smart guy with a big heart as the head of the court system, right? Then we could actually have justice. What do you think? R&R. &R, yeah. I'm on. Yeah. I got to get a law degree, but then I'm in. Actually, yeah. you don't. It turns out there have been uh, Supreme Court justices who were not lawyers. It's legal. Oh my gosh. Perfect. How about that? Anyway, so I'm a tangible guy. You know, I build shit. I build companies. I build software. I build technologies. I've got a farm, right? As I posted on Twitter the other day, you can't be a postmodernist farmer. There is no such thing, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Either you do things the right way and your crops prosper or they don't, right? But anyway, this, this 10 years of thought, what Joe Lightfoot calls the liminal web. Liminal means on the edge, trying to, you know, not knowing quite what that is. And we did not know what this was 10 years ago, but we felt it. We could feel that game A was just wrong, that our, mm. this was not what humans were meant to be. And, you know, since then, many of us have read anthropology. I love Chris Boehm's book, uh, Hierarchy in the Forest, which should have really been called 
anti-hierarchy in the forest. Yeah. How our forager ancestors had an operating system that ran for 180,000, 90,000 years that pulled down the big men, and it was usually men, when they tried to assert their authority over other people. Graeber and Winrow's recent book, The Dawn of Everything, excellent book. They actually engage Boehm, and I would say extend him in a, in a reasonable way. We've, you know, as, as, as you pound on us a little bit for, we've gone pretty far into complexity science and systems theory. And this is where I think really important insights have come about. And this is where I would argue that doing it the, the good old-fashioned way ain't going to cut it because the isms, you know, capitalism, socialism, communism, fascism, etc., are all simplistic, right? They're very simplistic. And they don't really understand what binds the systems together and replicates them. You know, we look at things we call generator functions as one class of things. These are deep, either game theoretic concepts, nature of how humans actually are, human nature, and then some things that have been invented that kind of hold game A together. And these include the multipolar trap. Daniel Schmachterberg talks about this again. Here's a very idiot example of a multipolar trap. Let's imagine five soft drink companies in 1972, sugar in their soft drinks. Archer Daniel Midlands develops this new technique for making high fructose corn syrup in 1974. One of the five companies says, huh, I'm going to replace my sugar with high fructose corn syrup, cut the price by 50%, Tastes the same, damn any uh, health consequences. And they are metabolized somewhat differently. But let's at least, it's not 100% clear they're worse, but let's assume for this purpose they are worse. Well, guess what? The other four are forced to respond, right? Either lose market share or they also have to switch from sugar to high fructose corn syrup. And guess what? They all did. There's numerous, mm. numerous of those traps. The military arms race is also a multipolar trap. Nobody wants to waste money on tanks and bombs other than arms merchants, right? It's a flat, deadweight yeah. loss for humanity, but we're stuck in a multipolar trap. Another one, you referenced Gerard, I think, in, in the first essay. Right. He actually does say something that, uh, to my mind, I think there are other people in Game B, call out one of the, one of the generator functions of Game A, which is mimetic desire. The fact that we want what other people want. And if you can combine that with the other things of game A, it's a ratchet for more and more and more and the hedonistic treadmill and we're never happy unless we think deeply about how to immunize ourselves against mimetic desire, we're trapped. You know, another one we talk about is the status symbol, the status in our societies, very unidimensional, mostly money, maybe money and personal beauty, right? When you're young and right. good looking, right? While in the forager worlds, there was the the great hunter of big animals. There was the hunter of little animals. There was the tuber finder. There was the fruit finder. There was the wayfinder. There was the fire starter. There was the uh, stone uh, napper. There was the tent builder. These were all people all had status, multi-dimensions. And, yep. you know, a big part of what causes that in our society is that we have a single signaling modality for organizing our cooperation. You know, this, you know, you, know, you and I see the same thing, kibbutzes or proto bees mm-hmm. that are networked together and trade with each other and, it's yeah, all, yeah, yeah. and, and all this sort of stuff, but we need a higher dimensionality of signaling than just money. 
right? Yeah. My co-author and I were actually working on a book on Game B right now. We were joking, you know, what about the idea of a codfish coin, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, every codfish, <laughs> the biologists each year assess how many codfish can be sustainably taken from the Atlantic Ocean, and let's say it generates 10 million pounds of codfish. And so everybody gets a tiny little fraction of a codfish coin, and people who like codfish will trade and get codfish coins for other things, right? Maybe oak coins, right? Because they want stuff made out of oak, and right. we, we know what the sustainable harvest of oak is. And so having multiple signaling modalities for cooperation allow us to create a much, much richer world than having everything collapse to money and having everything collapse to the status of how much money you got. Right. And there's some other ones. There's three or four more of these generator functions. And then these give rise to a, a second level of analysis, which we're looking for a name. You're a good name, man. So maybe you can come yeah. up with it. We currently call it collective illusions. And that's things that we believe to be true as a society, but ain't. For instance, that money is wealth, right? Money is not yeah. wealth. Money is a signaling modality. Or that security is individual, right? I don't care how rich you are. You're utterly dependent on a network of other human beings yep. for everything. Yeah, that's so much of what this new book I did is about. I mean, you talk to any real prepper, the first thing a real prepper does is teach everyone on their block how to be a prepper. Right, because they know that's the the, the biggest problem they're going to have is everybody else knocking on their door for their stuff. Exactly. You want a community of people to depend on. Yeah, yeah exactly, Easy. exactly. You know, the other one, healthcare is health. Look at how much money we spend on healthcare in America as opposed to health. You know, yeah. again, a long list. I got twelve of them on my list, and this work has been going on for ten years, and some of it's been driven by these highfalutin conversations, and so. I am at least somewhat confident that these SenseMaker, Liminal Web, Game B people have taken a while to think this through, but we now know enough to, to gradually start nudging the system forward in ways towards our mutually shared vision. And I don't see Game B at all as being this quantum leap all of a sudden. It has to be a little bit at a time, built in place, as I call seducing the people over from game A to game B a bit at a time. My own timeline says 50 to 80 years. Right. No, and I, I, I would love for cultural and societal and economic transformation to happen in that incremental way, right? So it's not that, you know, because we know if we talk to Nate Hoggins or somebody, if you said all of England is going to be using EVs instead of gas cars over the next five years, that transition alone would use up all <laughs> rare earth metals and destroy the planet in a, in a, in a manufacturing blitz. But I guess the, the issue as it, as as it relates to sort of my my concern is, you know, I hear when I hear Musk or Bannon or even on the left, like a Zizek, I hear the same thing from three different perspectives, which is tear it down. The system that we have doesn't work. They lied about the vaccines. They did hurt us. They do the, the vote was bad. The, the, the Biden is corrupt. Neoliberalism. There are these sort of three different efforts to tear it down. You know, one is the the Musk one, which feels like the closest in in some ways to game B, but 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 it it's not. You know, and Musk is like, we've got to, you know, this this everything sucks. We've got to replace it with, you know, either Musk or Teal and some kind of, you know, technocratic thing. Or you've got Bannon, who's like, oh, we gotta just tear this down and, you know, replace it with whatever, blood and soil. Or you've got Zizek from the far left. You know, the Marxist accelerationists can be just as bad, if not worse. I mean, they've been 
<laughs> they've been more violent or, or certainly as violent as anyone in fascism or or anything else or neoliberalism to tear it down and this this, this drive to kind of tear it down to get to the next thing is what I want to sort of slow down and have people look at. And, and that's why when I do hear the sense makers talk about over there and where we're going and this next place, it's like, for me, the, the theory of change is the change. How we get there is almost more important than wherever you want to get. Because as you're trying to get there, you realize, oh, this doesn't work. And then you change where that goal is, you know, when you are doing, you know, and as you would describe an, an iterative process, let's try a little of this. Where's this taking us? Are people more happy or less, more fed or less? What are the, because there's, well, as you would, you know better than me, secondary effects and tertiary effects. So, oh my God, we didn't see that one coming. And, <laughs> and, and most importantly, we can't see them coming, right? In right we can't, can't. Can we? In, right. in principle, we can't see nth order effects, right? And so we have to proceed empirically, experimentally. But this is this is where I'm going to give the but for game yeah. B. In the same way, good science goes from theory to practice to theory. The fact that game B has actually now built some theory allows us to steer more effectively and faster than just flogging around and using our 18th and 19th and 20th century ideologies as our steering wheels. Right. No, which we can't. Right. And those, and those were developed cynically to support, you know, a political nation state, you know, bullshit and a corporatocracy and charter monopolies. And I mean, that's my work historically looking at the invention of central currency. I mean, all the isms that you're talking about, I look at as results of of industrialism, you know, which was, you know, not even well-meaning. It was not even in order to get more goods to more people in less time. It was to get more goods with less labor, you know, and it was, it was, the whole thing was a, a, a cynical game, a, a cynical game from, the, from the beginning, but the way we move, and that's really what it is, the, the way that a lot of the boys talk about it sounds just like tech bros with kind of Ted talk you know, visionary plans. And, and I get it. You're trying to, they're trying to sell something, you know, and even if they're trying to sell game B, they're trying to sell it in the only way they can with, you know, beautiful flowery visions of some thing. I mean, and, and God, people like Tristan and, and Daniel are more eloquent than I am for sure. You know, when I hear, you know, Tristan, whether or not it's original and I always get upset with him. Cause it's like, Hey man, you just, that's what I just, I wrote a book about that 20 years ago, but he is saying it better than I could more convincingly. He articulates things and Daniel's is, is brilliant. The way he shoots up a flare about a, a, a concern and gets people to think these, these mimetic, I don't know what they are. They, 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 open up in the person's head afterwards. I mean, he's he's a master at these things, which is, I guess, part of why sometimes I get concerned because they're so convincing and it's, it's so hypnotic on a certain level. But I don't know what sort of awareness it engenders in the people that listen to it. Does it, if we're trying to build people who, if we're trying to help engender an environment in which people roll up their sleeves and start engaging in game be like behaviors, which they could do today. Right. And they I are, always say just, they are a few, right. a few are not many, a few. 
Right. What's the way to do that? And and don't we want to back off from these seemingly elitist, mostly white guy, intellectual, you know, Haverford dorm room, you know, conversations about, you know, the post-fascist neo-meta-modern future thing. And and because when it's when some types of people who listen to game B type rhetoric end up doing projects like Neo, you know, in Neo, this yep, giant yep, city yep. they want to build in Saudi Arabia and God bless them. They have a stack for this and a stack for that. And we're water and entertainment and culture and religion and education. But there's like 20,000 Bedouins who've been living on this land for how many? 10,000 years. So in order to create our ideal sustainable future society, we've got to clear away these indigenous people who've been actually doing it successfully for 10,000 years in order to build our thing. And that's where I go, oh, it's the theory of change that's the problem. You can't go in SimCity-like and just clear cut your way to a game B. You know, you, you, you do it slowly with what is rather than in, in that sort of imaginary leap. Yeah, I think that's in general correct. But, and certainly no real Game B person would be in favor of the Noam project, I can oh, tell Oh, good. You. That's good to know. Uh, no, definitely not. Yeah. We would say that's a horror show. That's exactly what you should not be doing. Right. right. That's classic. I guess it fits closer to what you, you talked about in your, in your part one of your meta essay, which is, you know, the bro billionaire view of what the future right. might look like. Well, you know, Game B is much more organic, building from small parts that intercooperate. The you know, last thing we'd want is a big top-down diktat on how to do anything. We right. think that's the that's the, uh, the the wrong way to do things. But I would also say that we have also gotten some insights on what why things haven't worked as well as they could have in the past. And one, uh, this is the thing, of all the th- insights from Game B so far, in fact, it came out of the, the collapse of the original Game B 1.0. It was a big fight between those who thought social institutions first and those who thought personal change first. Hmm. We literally fell apart over it and broke the Game B movement up, went into wow. what we called spore mode in 2014, which lasted three years. Then it regrew as Game B 2.0. And this is great because it's the same argument happened on the left. I remember I got in an argument with Naomi Klein where I was talking about, we should just change our behavior. Just stop going to McDonald's. Just start doing this, start doing that. And she's like, no, no, no. We need institutional change. That's not going to work. You're still in the system. And it was, it was an interesting, and the left has never really resolved that, that tension. So I'm interested in the spore mode. How does spore mode work and how did they find each other again? The way it worked was we literally pulled everybody together and said, we're fighting too much. This isn't productive. Take what you have learned from game B, go out into the world and just do what you do. Perhaps in the future, one or more of the spores will bloom and it'll come back, but it might not. Mm. Wow. It's, uh, it's over as of today, which was January 30th, 2014. And it did go out into spore mode for about three years. And then it recatalyzed around an essay Jordan Hall wrote, actually. Huh. I don't even remember which, name, which one it was, but it started pulling people in and it started growing exponentially. And the original Game B team was never bigger than 65 people. We quickly had thousands. And wow. the current world of maybe 30,000 Game B people have grown from that Game B 2.0 thing. And as I said, we're there's many of us who now believe the time is to go to Game B 3.0, which is along the lines of some of your objections, which is we have to act 
actually deliver. You know, talk is cheap. You know, right. high tone rhetoric on podcasts. Yeah, we can manu. We're pretty good at manufacturing that. Oh yeah. But let's build a village where people are actually living better than they would otherwise on four thousand watts instead of the eleven thousand watts the average American right. lives on. Right. Uh, Without a hundred million dollar initial investment. Yeah, and making right. it all all pencil out. Let's right. let's actually start building some employee owned businesses using the new hybrid co op model, which is a new. Yeah. 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 And then you're back, and then you're 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 beyond left. Yeah. And once you're doing that, then you're you know you're finding uh, uh, Trevor Schultz and the platform cooperative movement, and using open APIs to and you know and then we're all on the same page. Yeah. But let's get back to let's, let's flip back yes. to this hard question because you're right. The left has, has struggled with this. The right has struggled with this. Hitler struggled with this. Right. Ethereum struggled with this. Yeah, you know. <laughs> everybody struggles with this. Right. right. And here's our insight which probably comes from the fact that many of us have educated ourselves on complexity theory and evolutionary theory, which is closely related, which is the following. The institutions that you can have are constrained with the capacities that your humans have. We currently have humans who have been living embedded in game A now for 300 years and then the younger ones in highly in late stage financialized game B, I mean game A. Fortunately, we're old enough. We weren't quite enculturated with it but now it's been you know the shit show has been fully on at least since 1995 and mostly since 1975 and so these people have certain capacities and certain pre-programming and you can only build certain institutions with people who have these attributes fortunately people can change and through personal work with what we call psychotechnologies things like meditation psychedelic drugs even traditional religion dance martial arts you know on and on and on long list of traditional psychotherapy if that works for people people can modify themselves to a degree which then leads us to build new institutions that takes advantage of these people and then here's the key part this is where Naomi was correct is that if you're changing yourself, but you're still embedded in everybody else doing their thing, Gerard's mimetic desire is a constant force pulling you to the bad. We'll give you a very tangible example. I have a daughter who has a two and a half month old, our first grandchild. And our daughter's very thoughtful. And she's already worried what happens when her daughter's best friend comes to the house with a smartphone. Shit, right? Uh. Our daughter is adamantly opposed to the idea of eight-year-olds having smartphones. But if your best friend and all their friends have smartphones, what happens? So if you it build is. an institutional structure, <laughs> a kibbutz or a proto-B, where right. we, we have all come together and established our values for this, only for this community, no smartphones to anybody under 18. In fact, frankly, no smartphones for anybody. It's way easier for people to maintain that change of habit in the context of other people that support their values than it is on their own. I know. But the interesting thing is, you know, it's funny. The Jews do that, basically, with Judaism. And now that's used as an anti-Semitic trope that, oh, well, the Jews don't care about anyone but the Jews. And it's like, no, no, no. We were just saying, look, if you all want to eat pork, you can eat pork. We're just saying, our, we're, just, we're just not eating it ourselves, okay? You know, and it's really tricky. It starts looking exclusive to people. Yeah, and our answer to the, and the exclusive thing is a legitimate question mark. Right. Because we know before, these things that collapse to a single ideology are almost always horrible, right? Right. And so uh, we've also added in the concept of coherent pluralism. And the pluralism is really important. The co- 
hear it part is there's a certain set of beliefs of anyone who wants to consider themselves game B, but it's a quite small list. It may be as small as three items that we will live in balance with nature and that every organization in game B will offer voice to all participants, you know, i.e. employee owned companies as an example of a way you could have voice and that any game B entity ought to offer fair terms for exit to avoid them becoming cults. Right. So if you live in a game B community and you don't like it anymore, you can leave and take your capital account with you. And those two, that may be, it may be that small. It probably won't be that small, but like it could be that's the minimal set that we've, we've all identified it. But beyond that, pluralism can reign. I, the example I use, I could imagine a game B community that is at least nominally, like a Victorian suburb sexually, right? With, uh-huh. you know, monogamous couples, no divorce, no fooling around, though, of course, plenty of hypocrisy around the edges, be, human nature being what it is. But the social norms would be 19th century, middle-class English Victorianism. Uh-huh. And then like another another perfectly legitimate community, which is a sex cult. Right. Everybody's polyamorous. We have rules about disclosure and honesty, but no expectation at all of monogamy or anything like that. Right. Uh, both those perfectly legit. I could also see radically egalitarian ones. Like one of the things I've studied is the kibbutz movement in Israel a lot. I spent Lots of times studying it. Originally, all the kibbutzes were radically egalitarian. Right. They even, like, I love this, the very beginning, they even shared their underwear. People rebelled about that. But, and now mm. about 20% of the kibbutzes are still radically egalitarian, but they're out now on a, on a continuation continuum. There's a few that you might call Ann Randian, but most right. of them are kind of in the Sweden plus plus category where there's a lot of economic leveling and sharing and big investment in the commons, but it's not totally egalitarian. I say game B communities, even game B companies could be operating along those continuums so long as they adhere to the small coherent core. Right. But the question, the question though, then becomes why, why do they have to, or want to be part of the, the official B thing? In other words, there's, there's so much development that you're doing. Okay. So game B things will have this and we'll have that. And we've worked out this and we worked out that it's like, what do they join? Do, do they join an official federation and they got to follow certain rules? And if they don't follow the whatever, then they're kicked out. And, and what is being a member of the thing? Why is that different than just being an independent kibbutz? Yeah, that's a very good question. Of course, the Israelis have organized the kibbutzes and originally it was three or four federations and now it's two because some of them have merged and, right. and they do things like do capital investments together. They'll build factories together to build businesses because the kibbutzes produce 50% of Israel's food with 2% of the population. Still to this day. Still to this day. And 20% of the industrial capacity of Israel. They have, at the level of these higher level organizations, have created distribution companies for the kibbutzes, et cetera. And I would, I would see the proto-Bs that are cooperating with each other doing that, but at a fractal scale, because rather than just having two federations for a thousand proto-Bs, right. I imagine multiple different ways that they choose to interact and cooperate with each other on various things, from small things to big things. And then with respect to who can join, anyone who, want, who honors any protocol, and this is where it gets very interesting, uh, you don't have to accept all the protocols. You, you may just accept the one protocol about X, how we're going to do business with each other, for instance. Right. So we could be Klingons over here having our warlike, horrible stuff, but we agree to a protocol for exchange and we trade with you Ferengi game bees and human game bees over there, 
even though we have, you know, a radically different thought system. And you could be quite radical, though we may be, we may require the three, right? Living in balance with mate nature, uh, exit and voice. And, and maybe just those three. And if you want to- So you may require that of anyone you trade with. Any, any, yes. We may, we may require that of anybody we trade with. Not a lot. You know, if you want to be pro-abortion or against abortion, each of us has our own personal opinion, but that's not going to be a condition of trade. Are you a polyamorous sex cult or are you monogamous, hypocritical, middle-class 19th right. century Brits? <laughs> You could be either one. We don't care. We'll trade with you. So a relatively minimal uh, protocol on some on some things, higher protocols on others, right? Right. But not the whole world has to be game B in order to play along with – in yeah. other words, the, the, the part of game B that, that it gets, I think, communicated poorly to some of the wonderful white male intellectuals who are talking about it is they, they express it as a reboot of civilization. Like you pull this switch and then we get there, this moment of transmogrification from game A, which is all bad, to game B, which is all good. And it's like, uh, yeah, as you know. It doesn't happen. That's not the way the world works. Yeah, and, right. And if we talk, you know, those of us who've been working at this longer, we talk about gradually parasitizing game A from the inside, gradually, right? Right. And it's, as, as I say, it could take eighty years. If it does, great. And a lot of the people will never know. Exactly. They're in game B. Exactly. Is the thing, and that's the thing. It's got to be beautiful. I remember I was talking with a Jewish, um, a Jewish funder once about him wanting to, you know, promote Judaism and all, and he had these really ridiculous ideas of how to do it. And I was, I said to him, "What if everybody in the world did Shabbat and followed all the Jewish commandments and lit the candles and treated each other right and treated their kids and raised their kids with Jewish values, but nobody knew it was called Judaism? Would you be okay with that?" And he went, absolutely not. Oh, and I went, well, oh, well, then we have nothing to discuss here, sir. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I'm going to take, take something away from this conversation for AB 3.0, which is the, though it sounds a little Marxian, right? Which is we know that Game B will have been successful, but nobody even knows what Game B is. Oh, it is nice, though. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because then it's like we didn't. Because it's it's and people talk about and I hear them on the podcast saying how Buddhist it all is. Once we get there, it'll be Taoist and Buddhist. And it's like, no, no, no. If you're a Buddhist, you don't get anywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. There's no here, then there, you yeah, know. Yeah. And it's the artificial distinction between game A and game B, like it's a line that you cross. And it's not. It's it's like you're saying the way we move to a more egalitarian, distributive, you know, for me, an arco-syndicalist or for someone else, Marxist or for someone else, just nice. I just want us to be social again. You know, and that's what I take from Marx is when he looks, his solutions are so wrong. We're going to have a giant Robinson Crusoe-like ledger through which we orchestrate. Design. No, 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 no. That doesn't work. That was called the Politburo, wasn't it? Didn't they have a name for that? Um, that doesn't work. But to return to the social reality that I'm going to go hunt for a, a pig, you're going to make some burrito shells, and I'll meet you at five, and we're going to have burritos together. That's a social economy, right? Yep. With, convivial with conviviality near the core yes. of it. And also, yes. and here's the other key one. This was one of the very original Game B insights. I'll credit Brett Weinstein with this one, which is another one of these generator functions I didn't get to on the list is cultivated insecurity, 
Game A, often for malicious reasons, has chosen to atomize us and make us feel insecure, even though we're living in the richest society humanity has ever known. Yeah. Well, we buy more stuff if we feel insecure. Yeah, so and, it, it serves. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the very first things that your anarcho syndicalist communities and our Game B communities, I would hope, would offer is as long as you're a member of this community, you will not starve. No game B person, no, no uh, team human person will ever be homeless, right? At least not voluntarily. And that would be a, a gigantic sea change in how we relate to each right. other. This cultivated insecure, cultivated and unnecessary insecurity. There is enough square footage of housing. There's Four times as much food could produce the United States to feed every American. And yet people go to bed hungry every night. People are sleeping on the streets. I was in Denver last month. I haven't been in Denver in a while. And there's thousands of people looking pretty damn destitute on the street in Denver. What the hell? I haven't been to San Francisco in four or five years. They tell me it's even worse there. Right. You know, our world's the, the you know, one of the lodestars that both of us are steering towards is end cultivated an unnecessary insecurity and replace it with everybody having a home, everybody having a community, everybody, nobody being lonely, right? With this, this, right. this cult of loneliness. But the, the part that gives me the EBGBs though, is wherever it starts to sound kind of sweeping and total, there's a part of me that goes, uh-oh, be careful. You know, that, and, <laughs> you know, whenever you say, look, game A, you know, game A is wrong. As if, I mean, that gets to the muskie and let's just tear it all down or the Bannon, let's just rip this thing down as quickly as possible because it's wrong. And we're going to get to this sweeping total change and the way the world will be is like this and the world will be like that, that that it's, it's kind of totalizing in a way that makes me feel like, well, it, it, it starts to feel like a broad brush. Yeah, and I think you know what I mean? And it's a scary things happen. And I think it is fair to say that there's been sometimes too much of that in the game B rhetoric. And one of the things, and I've, I've been guilty of it maybe a few times, probably less than some of the others, is the collapsitarianism, right? Yes. Uh, now, here's though where I think you have to keep it in attention, which is I, I have been less collapsitarianism than some of my colleagues, but I'm not zero collapsitarianism. I say that there is a chance, and it's non-trivial, that our complex stack of ways in which we make our livings in the West will decomplexify substantially. Uh, <laughs> That's such a nice way of saying it. <laughs> right. In other words, the person doing the mortgage uh, actuarial assessment will be, you know, <laughs> digging holes for alfalfa. <laughs> exactly. And, and that a, a fair number of the people living in jobs they couldn't describe to their kids will end up being turned into jerky cooked over tire yes. fires, right? Uh, uh, Hopefully so, not. Uh, yeah. But it could come to that. And, and so Game B does have in its DNA, the fact that we may have to react very, very rapidly if things do come unwound. I call that the short road to game B. The one that we've been talking about mostly is what I call the long road to game B, where we get there without any discontinuity. And that's what we all hope happens. And people like Daniel Schmachtenberger, for instance, are working with people at the level of like undersecretaries of defense and stuff to try to help with avoiding catastrophe in the short term so that we have t time to evolve to this better world over. And it's going to be three generations. You know, it will be a very different world on the other side of this, a world of exponential growth in a finite planet transitioning to a world of 
stable or metastable growth within the planetary boundaries yeah. is a gigantic change on par with the the invention of game A around 1700. And, and so it will be a big leap. Again, though, when I hear, though, you know, oh, well, Daniel, Daniel Schmachtenberg is working with the head of security of the Swedish Secret Service or something to look at these security risks or that this member of, you know, Rebel Wisdom is meeting with, you know, Klaus, whatever, on, on great reset strategies. I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? You know, wh- wh- why are we dealing with the most, you know, uh, the, the hegemonic a world, <laughs> the world leadership, you know, or I hear, oh, look, we've got, you know, Prince Harry is, uh, <laughs> is now, you know, on our side. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on? Who's preserving what at this point? Yeah, I do wonder about that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, we can go back to, you know, Christianity, right? Christianity was famous that Christ and the disciples went out and talked to the, you know, what were thought to be the worst sinners. And they were denounced by the what they call them, the scribes and the Pharisees for, you know, talking to the, to the whores and the, and the sinners. And well, it's one thing to talk to the whores and the sinners. It's another than to go talk to Caesar about how to, you know, maintain power in the coming transition. Yeah, right? There's some truth. That. I certainly wouldn't want to do that though. At the end of the day, we did, they did flip Caesar also, right? Finally yes, did it. They did. Took three, <laughs> took, took 300 years. And so yeah, when, when Zuckerberg becomes emperor, hopefully we'll have seduced him or at least his offspring to Game B, right? <laughs> <laughs> game B will be in the metaverse. Yeah. Good luck with that no, one. No, I will say there's a lot of us, myself included, who are seriously considering taking the Mennonite route away from the metaverse. Hmm. That it's not clear to me that anything good happens from making our life even more digital than it is now. I know. I haven't made a firm conclusion on it. I've got a had for a while one of those uh, Quest Two headsets. I fool around with it. Haven't seen anything very interesting in it. But part of our Game B diagnosis is that having become so divorced from nature, as well as being divorced from our fellow man, is another part of what's driven us crazy here in late stage Game A. And that to get sucked into the metaverse. You know, you, you hear some of these very cynical views from these bro techies that you're talking about. Mark Andreessen, yeah. I think most famously said, oh, well, the guy will be happy working as a, uh, an Uber Eats driver. So long as when he comes home, he has three Lambos and a palace in virtual reality. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's the ready player one. Uh, exactly. View of the world. But you know, you know, the humanity is not going to be happy stacked up in little, in no, little trailers. I hope, not. Going into I VR hope not. I hope they'll look for an no. alternative. And, but we shall see where, I mean, the, we're at that point of the exponential tech with things between AGI, biohacking with CRISPR, virtual reality, you know, you can go on and on down the list where things are going to change and it, and AGI particularly, we have to get in front of it so that change is for the better and not for the worse. I think we'll both agree on that one. Yeah, I know. And it's just, again... If we can do it, capitalism hates it, but slow and steady, put a pseudopod in a new direction and see what's there. You know, gentle speculation, you know, brings about such, such better things than sweeping things. So it's, it's like the way game B looks, even if it's not what you intend, way it looks is we're going to have a complete stack ready to go. And then once enough people to agree, we can agree, we can push a button and deploy game B and we're in the new fractal now. And it's like, that's not 
how it goes, right? It's not, it's not, and you, it's funny. I was talking to Tyson Yunkaporta about uh, the whole meta thing I was writing and he was, we were talking about various kind of game B-ish people and he goes, oh, but Jim Rutt, he's okay. <laughs> he's like, feet on the ground. You know where he stands. He's real. He's on, it's just, it's there. You know what I mean? You're, you're grounded in reality, which is, is so much more comforting than if we're having one of those conversations about, well, if I see it like this and you see it like that, when we get to the Omega point, do you think, you know, the, the, the cerebral reincarnation of the, of the vibrational cortex, you know, will manifest dialogically or pedagogically? <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, I think that I will say that that critique is, is legit that there has been perhaps more of that kind of talk, but it, maybe it was necessary to get people to... It may be, but it's partly because when once you talk about a transition from a game A to a game B, from a this state to a next state, from a now to a meta state, it attracts a certain kind of speculation, I think, of people. And I get it. We're all in pain. We're all looking to move from this thing, especially a whole bunch of tech bros who know that they've done terrible damage to this world and want to get you know, get away from that, you know, maybe without paying karmic debt or even paying it, whatever it is, but they realize, oh my God, we fucked this up pretty bad. And now, and in game B, there's, there's sometimes the illusion that, oh, we can pedal to the metal, do more of this and get out on the other side with game B. But the real game B you're talking about, no, sorry, doesn't work like that. It actually involves slow down. Yeah, we're not techno-optimists at all. Schmachtenberger is definitely no. a think-slow kind of guy. And I would say he was the right. one that really brought that. I will say there were some tech-optimists hmm. uh, in the early game, B, but I, was, I think the effect of Schmachtenberger has been very good at making us realize that you can't live on, you can't be pursuing exponential processes in a finite world, right? That's one, if, right. if that one simple idea, if it could get into people's yeah. heads, we'd start to behave, I think, a lot better. Well, I think this has been a great conversation. Really yeah. enjoyed it. We talked about lots of interesting things, as always. <laughs> so it was great to have you on the Jim Rudd Show. It's great to be here. And it's so good, fun to disagree without flaming. Oh, yeah, Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's just like, what the fuck? Wait, no, yes, no, yes. Uh, it's, 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 it, and I'm, so I'm hoping that we're modeling something that many of our peers don't if you know what I mean, which is a kind of brittleness in response to challenge, you know, and it's a, what's the point of that, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's funny when, when your essay came out, a few game B people had their, you know, their, their, you know, Oh my God, what's Doug, Doug Ruskoff saying about us? And I said, Doug's a good guy. He's on our side. Let me book him on a podcast. Let me re read his stuff carefully. Yeah. I was surprised. I was surprised by how quickly, and I actually told a lot of my friends this, how on Twitter, Game B, a couple of people reacted very negatively, and other Game B people were saying, well, wait a minute. I've read uh, Rushkoff might have a point here. And even if we don't mean that, look at how he's seeing this. What could we do in our communications to make him not think it, that this is what I was like, dang, that was, I, I was like, I didn't expect that. I expected rage. Well, I'm glad you yeah. saw that. I'm glad you saw that because that's that was what I would have hoped, right? Yeah, it was amazing. I was like, oh well, this community is a whole lot more resilient than I gave them credit for in in the way I was. It's thinking also about a lot them. bigger yeah. than people think it is, right? That you think of these 
It's not seven yeah. white guys. It's 30,000 people yeah. now. And it's still <laughs> 75% guys, but it ain't yeah. the 10 guys you've heard about all the time. And some of them are doing doing their own right. things. Like one of the things I love, it's kind of a spud off of Game B called Doomer Optimism. And mm. Doomer <laughs> they're, they're really good at communication, <laughs> better than the, game, the home Game B crowd is. And they're basically focused yeah. on small scale homesteading and being a little bit more self-sufficient, doing right. potlucks with your neighbors. And, you know, it's real yeah. grassroots, but it's real Game B in its, in its orientation. And I find that to be a, a really nice, relatively recent phenomena. And there's other ones spouting off here. Every, you know, I can't go three days without doing a Zoom with somebody who's working on some Game B thing I never heard of. And I think that's great. Mm. Yeah. And that's really what we want to see. All I want to see is let's talk more. Let's just do it. Time's running out. Tame's running out here, you know? <laughs> it, it, indeed it is. Well, again, thanks for a wonderful conversation and we'll chat again. Thank you. All right. You take care. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.